welcome everyone to this Master Investor webinar brought to you in association with NetWealth. The topic of today's discussion is investing in times of uncertainty. What we hope to achieve is to help you all to take a step back, take a deep breath and to assess things dispassionately to ensure that you approach the challenges of the current market setback with a cool head but also to reassure you all that market downturns are a normal part of investing and need not be feared, and indeed can in fact represent a major period of opportunity. So before we kick off, a few introductions. My name is James Faulkner. I'm the editor of Mast Investor. I'm joined by well-known investor and Mast Investor contributor, Jim Mellon, chairman of Burnbray Group. Jim is known for his ability to identify big investment themes that stand to grow into what he refers to as money trees with biotech, clean meat, and longevity science has been some examples of areas where Jim has been an early mover. I'm also joined by Charlotte Ransom, CEO of NetWealth. Charlotte and the NetWealth team have attended the Master Investor Show for the last two years running, and Charlotte herself have enjoyed Jim as a main stage speaker. But for those of you that aren't familiar, NetWealth is an innovative UK wealth manager that offers cost-effective, globally diversified portfolios for private investors. Before founding NetWealth, Charlotte spent 20 years at Goldman Sachs, and she's been very successful in securing the backing of some very high-profile investors, including Michael Spencer of ICAP fame. Finally, um, just a few housekeeping points before we begin. As this is a live webinar, there might be some connection lag, so please do bear with us, and if you do experience any audio problems, I'm told that you should refresh your screen. We will be taking questions, so please keep those coming during the course of the webinar, and we'll do our best to get through as many as possible at the end. You'll also see that NetWealth have made available for download their Investing During Uncertainty Guide, which you can download by clicking on the PDF. There will also be a short survey at the end of the webinar, so if you don't mind spending a few minutes of your time to complete that, the folks at NetWealth would very much appreciate it. So to kick off then, um, I just want to gauge the panel's assessment of the severity of this downturn, um, because it, it does seem that we are entering the worst recession since the Great Depression. And given that, it's, it's quite easy to take um, a cynical view of this rally, isn't it, Jim? Uh, well, it's, it's, it, it's a difficult um, question to answer because I know that we're supposed to be investing during periods of uncertainty, but every period is a period of uncertainty. There is never any certainty in, in investment. And this particular uh, last two or three months has demonstrated that to perfection. What I would say is that you have approximately a 15 trillion US dollar rise in markets from the bottom around mid-March and you have an approximately $15 trillion fiscal and monetary stimulus across the globe, those figures being very back-of-an-envelope figures since then as well. And so one might think that the rises in markets, and in some cases, uh, rises that have taken stocks back to where they were at the beginning of the year, which is remarkable considering, um, has been due to uh, this huge amount of liquidity that's been created by both central banks and governments around the world. And uh, that may or may not be true, but what I would say is that 
it has taken stocks to levels which are probably uh, reflective of over-optimism on the part of investors in terms of fundamentals. We are still in the midst of recession. We're still in the midst of this coronavirus. Admittedly, it, is, it does seem to be dissipating, but none of us know if it's going to come back. None of us really knows if the vaccines are going to work. Um, and I would say that you know there are sectors out there which have been absolutely destroyed, notably hospitality, tourism, airlines, etc. And they represent a very big part of the economy. So we should not expect a very, very sharp uh, bounce back. On the other hand, I don't think we're going to get the same level of panic and fear reflected in the rise in the VIX index for some time. You know, we had an 80 level on the VIX, as you can see from my slide, uh, in 2008 at the peak of the then financial crisis, and we've had approximately the same level on the VIX at the peak of the financial uh, debacle in this particular cycle, and the VIX has gone down to what you might call normalized levels at slightly below, maybe slightly above normal, but around 30. So uh, just to reiterate, there is never a time when investors can be complacent and feel that they can be certain about anything, which is one of the reasons why you have to be diversified across asset classes, as I know net wealth is on behalf of their clients. And you have to be smart about the long-term positioning of your portfolio, because there will be, as you said, James, periods like this that will reoccur. Uh, and as long as you are not swept away in a tide of margin calls or over emphasis on one particular category in your investment portfolio, you will be fine because long term stocks reflect the fundamentals of economies and economies over the next 20 years will be pretty good in my opinion. Given what Jim's just said, Charlotte, um, is it is it right for investors to sit on the sidelines and wait, wait for this um, for this second test of the, the low that we saw in March? Um, because time and again, we see investors sitting on the sidelines waiting for a better entry point, and it actually never comes and the market ends up running away. So um, what's what's the best strategy um, at this um, point? Thank you. I think um, one of the things that we are all quite focused on, just with respect to whether or not um, is the time to get invested right now, is in part down to how the lockdown um, or the unlocking occurs. Um, because just from the point of view of um, the skepticism around currently relatively buoyant markets, we haven't yet been able to see how well countries will be able to come out of lockdown, although we can see the impact in China where the economy there is starting to move back into decent shape fairly quickly. I think um, from an investor standpoint, just as Jim has been saying, it's it's really a question of taking a longer term view and perhaps seeing um, the type of situation we're living through right now as an opportunity, but recognizing that it isn't necessarily going to be easy to time the market. And one of the things which I'm sure 
many of you on the call will be familiar with is this notion of, of spending time in the market and not timing the market. Um, and in fact, I think it might be worth just um, pulling that slide up. Um, the slide that I'm referring to here um, is one that shows the S&P 500 over a period from 1986 um, all the way up to, uh, to the end of 2018. And in the center, you can see the daily returns from the S&P um, going from the top, sorry, from the bottom 86 up to the top. And what you can see is for every negative move, there is almost always a positive move in fairly quick succession, either just before or just after, which shows how markets tend to be um, difficult to time. And in fact, what we know is that since the start of that period, 1987, the S&P 500 has produced total returns in excess of 2,000%. But if you missed over just over um, three decades, the top 10 trading days over that time, you would have um, been up less than half that, so 920%. So what we um, tend to think is a far better strategy at this point is to average in. And it's partly because market timing is next to impossible, um, but also because we know that during times like this, there's a good opportunity to get involved um, and to take advantage of what may well be markets that are volatile to the downside as well as to the upside. And when we're talking about averaging in, Charlotte, um, what's the, the easiest ways for investors to do that? Because obviously, frequent trading carries costs in terms of, you know, transaction costs, um, stamp duty, that kind of thing. So yeah. what, what would you suggest is the easiest way for an investor to do that? So typically what we're seeing is um, investors who commit a certain amount of money that they know they want to put to work, and they will either... Um, employ monthly or weekly staggers that they agree with us, and those staggering amounts will typically be somewhere between 10 to 20 percent of the notional amount that they're intending to invest over time. So really the main thing is to take the emotion out of investing and simply recognize that over time it's quite likely that you will um, paid in situations like this for allowing yourself to, um, in fact, in our case, have someone else average in on your behalf um, in a way that is pre-agreed. And of course, to the extent somebody wants to accelerate that averaging in or slow it down, that's also possible. But the main idea is not to get too hung up on one single date. And I want to talk a little bit about the uh, passive approach versus the active approach, because Obviously, we've seen a lot of stocks during this crisis that have had some, you know, amazing performances. Um, and at the same time, um, we can also argue that this crisis has been a vindication of the benefits of portfolio diversification, which you can quite easily get through investing, investing in passive funds. So I'm just interested to, to hear the, the views of the panel 
in terms of you know the interplay between passive and active? This is not really my area, but this is basically Charlotte's area. But what I would say is that the net wealth system, which as I understand it, is to use ETFs, which are passive funds, but in an active way. In other words, they determine the allocation between ETFs is a good strategy um, because you get baskets of underlying stocks in differing strategies or underlying bonds in differing strategies, and you can make your own asset allocation. And I, I think that's a, that's a good way to go about it. The we know that some stocks have done well in this downturn. They have been the FANG stocks. They've rebounded. Um, I think they're priced to perfection. Uh, we would know, for instance, why Amazon instinctively, all of us sitting at home waiting for parcels, has done well. Uh, we know why Zoom has done well, even though we're not using Zoom for a change uh, today, thank heavens. And uh, we know why one or two others have done well. But basically, this that is like winning the lottery. You know, the idea that you'd be able to pick these stocks that have benefited from this lockdown uh, on your own before the crisis hit is frankly ludicrous. I very much doubt that anyone has managed to do that. Uh, and so this gets back to the idea of slow, progressive, slave saving without the fear factor entrusting a professional if you're not a professional yourself you don't have the time to triage all the stocks to do it for you and i like the concept of using etfs which are extremely low cost generally speaking in an active way so i'm giving a kind of endorsement here for net wealth even though i'm not paid by them so go ahead charlotte <laughs> um that's great thanks very much ben. um I think you know the only uh, thing I might add is is that the way we would think about it is perhaps a core satellite approach. So what we know from lots of our clients that they like to do is to use um, passive funds. So quite often ETFs, but but certainly passives. And as Jim said, to take advantage of their liquidity and low cost. And in the case of working with a group like ours, you have a professional team of people who are actively asset allocating between them um, and building up your core in a diversified portfolio of passive funds. Um, and then perhaps complementing that with some satellite stock picks, which will by definition be more volatile. Um, some may go very well, some may go less well, um, but they allow you as investors to. Um, you know, decide on the areas that you might feel very strongly about and that you might enjoy and complement very well having this, this core um, set of passive funds. And actually one thing perhaps I'd, I'd like to show is um, on slide one where we talk about putting the current market moves in context. And this is just to give a sense from um, a passive fund standpoint. So what you can see here is we have portfolios numbered from portfolio one up to portfolio seven. Those are the seven model portfolios that net wealth bases, uh, we base our investments around. And what this shows you is in the navy blue bars, um, what the maximum 12 month returns have been 
um, over a long period for each risk level. So you can see at the lower end, um, in fact, very low risk portfolios have done well historically given the historic move in interest rates. But there you can see going from 12% up to 45% as the um, as the best 12 month strategic return. And then in the gray bars, you can see the minimum 12 month strategic return. Now, what we know is that as you increase risk, which in our case, as you go up the scale from one up towards seven, we're increasing equity exposure and therefore have greater market exposure. And therefore your returns are likely to be both higher, but also where you could potentially see larger losses as well, which is reflected in those gray bars. But what's interesting is then to look at the circles to see how a diversified portfolio has behaved in the context of what we are now living through. So the yellow circles demonstrate what the first quarter this year performance was like. Um, in each of those seven risk levels. And the brighter blue circles show you what the latest one year performance has been like. And what this really tells us is you can see that um, up to portfolio four, um, the returns over the last year have been flat to slightly positive. But more importantly, perhaps, is that the portfolios are behaving as you would expect in the context of historic returns. And maybe this will be something that we talk a bit more about, but I think um, a little bit like you heard in Jim's introduction, when markets behave as they are, we are all left feeling um, you know, anxious on the one hand and wondering if there's a great opportunity on the other. And this is obviously particularly uh, exacerbated perhaps this time around when there's such a horrific um, pandemic that is affecting everyone uh, in the world in, in different ways. But what it's good to remember is that investment markets always are volatile and that as you um, increase the amount of potential risk you take on with your investments, you should expect to see moments of increased volatility. And it's interesting just to note that in fact this crisis hasn't breached um, the type of performances that we have seen in the past. Okay, so what we've been talking about so far is mostly relevant for people that are in the accumulation phase of you know building up capital, perhaps in a pension or ISA, um, to you know to to um, look after them in retirement. What about the people that are in the drawdown phase and now approach retirement? Um, and are faced by the prospect of a, of a pension pot perhaps being a lot smaller than they might have uh, expected um, previously. Um, what, what approach should they be taking right now? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question because we've had so many people ask us about this conundrum and perhaps there's no surprise. I mean, as you said, um, if you are still in the process of contributing to your pension, then it's quite likely that this is going to be as good a time as ever to continue contributing to what is a very long-term goal, potentially with a kind of core and satellite approach that I mentioned. But for those who are much nearer retirement, then I think it's worth assessing 
what your income needs are going to be and checking whether your portfolio will still be able to sustain them given the recent moves. And if not, it's obviously better to know that earlier rather than later. And to consider if you either have other assets you could add to your retirement pot or potentially look at the effect of adjusting your income requirements, at least in the short term, once you're drawing down. But for those who are looking to draw or are already in drawdown, there's always, of course, the potential to stop taking income from your cot for the time being if you have other means. And that's one of the reasons why we typically suggest that people have six to 12 months of cash as just a wise buffer to have for situations like these, or potentially to reduce the amount you're taking if you can. But I think it's also worth looking at slide four because this just gives some context to drawing down in volatile periods. Of course, we have to draw on history here, but what you can see in this example is for somebody with 500,000 pounds, where they're making the investing in a balanced portfolio. So in other words, uh, something that is split roughly 15 fixed income and equities, or holding that as cash with a view to withdrawing £36,000 a year to total 360000 over 10 years. Now, what you can see is that we've modelled this starting just before the crisis of 2008. And what we know is that, of course, at the peak of the crisis, it would have felt better to be in charge and taking those withdrawals that were potentially supporting retirement. But what you can see is over time, that 500,000, including the 30,000 pound withdrawals, would have left the person who had continued to draw throughout what was initially a crisis period and thereafter a benign investing period would be left £332,000 as opposed to the person drawing from cash where the, the amount would have reduced to £185,000. So it was a saving of close to £150,000 despite having to draw down in what was um, and, and still remains an acutely difficult um, and volatile period uh, for financial markets in 2008-2009. So that just gives you a sense if you're at that stage or coming up to the stage of drawdown that you can always um, you know, create a holiday period if you like, stop taking those incomes. And in the example slide here, that of course would have been a good thing to do for a couple of years if it were possible. But if it weren't possible, there is no reason to think that your drawdown strategy had been completely central, of course. So Charlotte talked about the um, core satellite approach, and I just want to get Jim's view on um, the the prospect of buying into a lot of these bombed out cyclical stocks and, and value stocks at this time, given that on the faces of it, a lot of these stocks look like you know amazing value, um, because this obviously um, it pertains to the the satellite side of, of the coin, doesn't it? So Jim, what what can you offer us here in terms of um, 
the potential to generate some alpha for the portfolio? The, I, I would look at it like a sandwich rather than a core and satellite um, approach. And I think that anyone, and that includes people who might be going into what Charlotte described as a drawdown scenario, uh, should possibly think about their invest, investment strategy like this. So at the outer end, you've got uh, moonshot investments or thematic investments uh, that reflect the potential of society to reinvent itself. And that is that process is going to be accelerated by what's happened in the last two or three months. And the thematic investments, as you know, that I'm keen on are the environment, longevity, and clean food or the reinvention of agriculture. And let's not forget that all of these pandemics come from agricultural practices, be they intensive farming or wildlife uh, culling, uh, and mostly out of China. Uh, we need to uh, address those if we're going to avoid future and possibly worse pandemics. So all of them are interlinked, and I think that everyone should have some reflection of that meta theme in their portfolio at one end of the sandwich. At the top end of the sandwich, we all need insurance. And for the last two years, I've been banging the drum for gold and silver and anything to do with gold and silver. Because although we know that we're in a period of deflation at the moment, and that's reflected in uh, bond prices, the fact that unemployment's going through the roof, the fact that money velocity is not very high, even though there's a huge amount of new money being printed, um, we are going to go into a period of asset inflation. And I don't just mean financial assets or property assets. I mean asset inflation in terms of prices in the shops, wages, uh, and it's, it's not a good scenario for anyone who's a saver in uh, bonds or a saver in you know, squirreling their money under the, the sofa. Uh, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest in equities. That's a different thing. So that's both end of the sandwich. You've got gold and silver and anything to do with precious metals at one end. And underneath, you've got your meta-thematic investments. And if you think about meta-thematic investments that have done well in this crisis, Beyond Meat, which is the only one of the new agricultural companies that's got any traction because it's public, uh, has done extremely well in this crisis because people can't get hold of meat because of the slaughterhouse issues in the United States. And they're trying out uh, the vegan meat for the first time and quite liking it. And the sales are up 200% year on year um, as a result. That's one example of a thematic investment. In between, you mentioned cyclicals and bomb out stocks and all this sort of stuff. I would have said that Kraft uh, Heinz, as an example, uh, was a cyclical stock before going into this crisis. It, it certainly had the characteristics of a cyclical. Uh, its core market, which was selling tinned foods and packaged goods, was under threat, and it was quite leveraged and uh, the management wasn't particularly respected. It's been a very good stock in this period because everyone's been loading up on the tin foods, so we don't know really what a cyclical stock is. Uh, so I would say that we you can't really define stocks as being either cyclical or non-cyclical because we don't know what period of the cycle that any stock really 
is in. But we do know that some stocks have been very badly hit. And those stocks, as I mentioned earlier, are in the hospitality and tourism and airline sector in particular, because obviously their business has fallen down to zero. Cyclical stocks, we don't really know what a cyclical stock is. You know, they change according to time. But I will say that obviously that the ones that have been worst affected are hotels, tourism, uh, airlines, for obvious reasons I don't need to go into. It's no coincidence that IAG, listed in the UK, which owns British Airways, Iberia, Welling, uh, Aer Lingus, and a couple of other airlines, wants see its competitors go bust because they know and they are right that as soon as people start traveling again and they will despite all these dire predictions they will they will have a, not a monopoly but they'll be in a much stronger position to dictate pricing on key routes that is a buy in my opinion you also have uh, delta airlines which is in a similar position in the united states even though it does own a share of Virgin, that's irrelevant really to its, its big position. And you've got the hotel companies, and the best hotel companies are Whitbread, uh, which uh, owns um, Premier Lodge, the Premier Inns in the UK, Marriott in the United States, and Intercontinental uh, Hotels listed here in the UK. Those, in my opinion, are true cyclical stocks. They've been very depressed as a result of. Uh, what's happening and we should be now looking for the recovery in those companies and they will become stronger because their competitors will fall away in a schumpeterian cycle of destruction quickly finish off the sandwich you've got the protection part of the sandwich you've got the moonshot metathematic part of the sandwich and in between you've got a portfolio of stocks or bonds and if you're not a professional you're not familiar with it you might as well and you will be much better off giving your money to net wealth or other and other fund managers maybe spread it around a bit uh rather than trying to choose the stocks yourselves i have got a list here of um stocks that i quite like at the moment they're in my own portfolio you've got uh craft Heinz i mentioned earlier uh you've got some of the financial stocks which have been unnecessarily because they couldn't pay their dividends they were forced to not pay their dividends by governments but they they could have paid their dividends and they're in a relatively strong position this is not a financial crisis in the way it was in 2008 and you've got uh companies in the insurance sector which i think are very strong and will do extremely well out of this like rsa and phoenix so this is a list of some stocks that um i think and then you've got also the energy companies uh total and world shell they make money, whatever happens to the oil price, more or less, and uh, they are extremely cheap. And then you've got the Amazon of China, which is going to do much better than Amazon, I think, Alibaba, which is uh, relatively cheap compared to Amazon, about 25 times earnings. So um, those are a few recommendations. But to be quite honest, uh, if you don't want to be kept awake at night and you can't take the uh you know can't take the bumpy ride i would just give your money to net wealth and other fund managers maybe spread it around a bit as i said earlier and then on the other side on each side have representation of gold silver and meta themes okay so i just want to move on to mental discipline and investor psychology because this is really important given you know the state of affairs at the moment um 
Fortune is made in bear markets, um, and yet it goes against the grain to invest when everything seems to be falling apart around you, as things do at the moment. Um, but how can investors keep a cool head in the face of all this, Charlotte? Um, yeah, thank you, James. Um, so again, obviously, this does come up quite a lot, um, and I think um, investing discipline is incredibly important in trying to keep some of the emotion out of this, although that's always easiest than done. Um, I think maybe one thing that is really important to remember when we're living through times like this is trying to, you know, reduce the, the scale level and think about the opportunity that it provides, particularly when we think about the fact that investing is typically done over the time period. Um, I think I might use slide six, which I like this slide um, because when we talk about bear markets, it, um, it's typically um, slip of 20%. And this year, the US market dropped 30%, which has actually only happened 19 times. 11 of those times was during the 1930s. Acknowledging that falls of this sort of size and nature have almost always been beneficial for investors over time. So what you can see from this slide is that investors saw substantial increase in return, um, either 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days, so one, two, or three months, as we've actually been seeing ourselves, albeit with intraday and intraweek volatility. And then once you extend the timeline to over the next five years, you actually see were only three instances of negative returns, and all of those were during the 30s. So you can see that the median returns on the far right of the slide, and actually I should point out that these are price returns. So they're higher still when you look at them on a total return basis. They have all been impressive returns um, as a result of how markets have behaved after big falls. So I think it comes back to this idea of, um, I mean, the reason people are on the call today is that we're living through these unprecedented times. And all we can do is try to understand as much as we can about what's driving the markets. And as Jim said, this time, this is not financial concerns the same way that it was in 2008, for example. Um, there's an awful lot still that we don't yet know about um, how this will over time play out, particularly how global economies are affected and how companies over time are able to resume, um, you know, driving their earnings the way that they were. As Jim said, there will definitely be individual instances of companies that do extremely well. But keeping a cool head, taking an approach where you're clear about what your individual financial goals are, what the time frame is that you're looking to invest, and understanding what type of volatility you're able to withstand, would, in the backdrop we're living with right now, tend to suggest that a cool head will be well rewarded over time. Sorry, I think we'll start taking some questions from um, the audience now. Um, and the first question is, 
Um, what is the panel's view on ESG investments? Yeah, it, it's a very interesting topic and one that is becoming, um, you know, increasingly, uh, I would say, debated. I think that there are plenty of very good and reasonable um, discussions about why this is so important and and how over time um, investors are likely to demand um, greater, um, you know, greater access to ESG investments. What we've obviously seen is that they've actually performed well, and in part that's down to the fact that this has become, become an increasingly popular way to invest. Um, NetWealth doesn't yet formally offer ESG portfolios, but we have actually seeded um, seven model portfolios as we have in the other uh, non, if you like, non-ESG portfolios for a year now and been monitoring their behavior and making a decision about how we would potentially go about offering them. I think, you know, the concerns that we might have is whether or not you're able to satisfy individual investors in terms of what each of us um, believes we're looking for or what each of us is is searching for. So we might have one client one day comes in and, you know, it's all about clean energy. And we might have someone who comes in the next day and say that they don't want any tobacco or that they want to avoid um, arms, for example. So it's quite difficult, I think, to um, be sure that when you offer these types of portfolios, you're actually satisfying what individual investors are looking for. And we're also keeping a very close eye on this concept of greenwashing and to make sure that we don't, um, you know, help push a strategy that isn't actually doing what it says on the tin, or at least that the companies that are being invested in are managing to find a way to get a tick in the box as opposed to genuinely pursuing um, a strategy that is, for example, environmentally friendly. So I think there's quite a long way to go in this, um, but I do expect that it will be a part of the market that continues to grow quite quickly. Okay. Um, next one, I think this is probably one for Jim. Um, any advice on the way to access precious metals, please? There are a variety of, of ways of investing, as, as uh, some of you will know. Um, Number one is to buy the physical metal. Um, in terms of gold, that's not so difficult because one ounce of gold is now around $1,750. So uh, and an ounce of gold is only a relatively small coin. If you do buy ounces of gold physically, I would recommend you buy British sovereigns because they do not attract any capital gains tax on sale because they're legal tender. Um, if you buy silver, on the other hand, it's pretty heavy because it's around $17.50 an ounce. So it's 100th the price. The slide of the gold-silver ratio is at an all-time high at the moment, or pretty close to an all-time high, which indicates to me that silver may be your better bet. There are stocks out there that you can buy, um, including ETFs, which hold physical gold. And um, I would recommend that you buy an ETF that 
doesn't have any leverage. So in other words, it's not borrowing money in order to invest in gold. It doesn't promise a three-time return or anything like that on the price of gold going up. So just a straightforward tracker, effectively, of the gold price. Um, and there are, of course, gold mining companies and gold royalty companies. And I would recommend in the royalty company area, Franco Nevada, which is a huge company, uh, which has done extremely well by buying royalty streams from mining. And I would recommend uh, in silver, a company called Fresnillo, which is listed in London. It's a very big company. Uh, and again, uh, it's uh, very liquid. And then you've got Anglo-American as, in my opinion, a good all-round uh, mining company worth buying uh, at this stage. And of course, you've got these like uh, barrack mining uh, from Canada and the United States that are worth looking at. There are such smaller companies out there, and I'm sure you can find them yourselves. But so you've got a range of physical, you've got the ETFs. Uh, you've got the gold mining companies or the silver mining companies that you can choose from. There's quite a range, but whatever you do, you must have gold and silver in your portfolio. And I will say, and I have said this on record, that I think gold will be over $2,500 by the end of this year per ounce, and silver will be over $25 per ounce at the end of this year. And it will be hard to get similar returns in any other category. Okay. Um, next one's a bit of a controversial one, um, something that we seem to have forgotten about as well lately. Will the UK prosper from Brexit on 31st of December? Well, I wouldn't um, profess for this to be, um, you know, my, my pet subject. Our chief economic strategist, Jared Lyons, who's a very well-known economist, has been um, very involved in discussions about Brexit in, in the lead-up. Um, to the decision to leave. And I think that his view is that we will Brexit still, and that in time, Britain will do well from it. Um, for the time being, there is obviously a huge focus on how well the country is supported by the Bank of England and by the government to get us through the current crisis as it is. And one of the things that we are seeing is sterling weakness, and that is probably both to do with the current situation, but with that sort of um, spectre of Brexit that is still hanging over us. So it's it's a very interesting question, actually, because, of course, it's a topic that everybody was talking about nonstop um, until very recently, and has suddenly Brexit has been uh, become completely sidelined by the pandemic. Um, and I think it will be very interesting to see, but our expectation is that over time um, the British economy will do well. Our economist, actually, Jared Lyons, does not believe that austerity will be necessary. Um, he believes that we should be able to allow the balance sheet to continue to um, you know, balloon to the extent that it's necessary for these different supportive me measures to be kept in place. And then very gradually over time, obviously, um, have a move back towards much more normal types of measures. But um, I think, you know, I would, I would suggest that his view at least, and um, he is certainly somebody who has spent a lot of time on this particular debate, is that 
the uh, move to Britain being out of the EU will be a good one, and that the in the interim, uh, I think the the pandemic has probably uh, meant that some of our calculation on that will have been, um, you know, certainly affected because there are certain things we won't know whether or not it was the pandemic or Brexit that has caused um, either positives or negatives over time. But um, we would expect this to be a positive move in the long run for Britain. Yeah, I, okay. I agree with that. Um, I, 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 I'm a supporter from an economics point of view of Brexit like Gerald Lyons is. And I I'm basically take the view that the Euro uh, zone, not necessarily the European Union, but the Euro zone will fracture. And I've had that view for a while. Um, we can see that there has been very little solidarity uh, between the various members of the Eurozone in this crisis. I mean, there was an announcement of a $500 billion possible joint bond between Germany and France yesterday. Whether that ever comes to pass, I, I doubt it. But frankly, they left the Italians to their own devices. The Italian economy is absolutely on its knees. It's got really very dire prospects ahead of it in whatever way it goes, whether it remains in the Eurozone or whether it leaves the Eurozone. I'm glad that Brexit is no longer a contentious or, you know, polarizing argument that people are now moving on to whether the NHS is a good thing or whether the British government's done a good job or not in the pandemic crisis. I'm glad they've got it behind them, but it is a nonetheless an important thing. And uh, the problems uh, of the European Union have been uh, shown up as a result of this pandemic because you've had really a worse economic performance in countries like France and Germany um, as a result of the pandemic because their old manufacturing model, their old dirigist model is just not responding properly in these circumstances. And the UK has a great opportunity, has a great opportunity in biotech where we are number two in the world to really advance uh, in that area and to build a you know, an even bigger and better industry. Uh, it has an opportunity uh, in agriculture, the new forms of agriculture that will come out, um, which is essentially a biotech industry. Uh, and we could really grow a very, very decent economy um, in the UK over the next 20 years, but nothing will be evident on December the 31st. I don't understand why the pan's weak, to be quite honest. It's probably got to do with uh, the fact that um, We've briefly had negative interest rates here in the UK uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks. I don't think that will persist, but I do think that uh, government spending is entirely financeable without resort to austerity because interest rates are so low, they can borrow at almost nothing and they can borrow huge amounts of money. And uh, that's what they should be doing. Um, this next one's a really interesting one, given what's been happening with dividends at the moment. Um, should accumulating investors increasingly look at total return assets rather than primarily income assets? Well, I'll give you um, the net wealth view because this is something we feel pretty passionately about. And obviously, we um, work with a lot of clients who have been targeting income. And one of the problems that we have seen with income funds over the years is that there is sort of by definition a tendency for them to start to have a bias towards certain industries, um, and, you know, oil industries being an obvious example, um, that you run the risk that when things don't look so good, 
um, those income funds will be particularly um, impacted by that. And what we have instead always um, asked clients to think about is to think about ways to generate income from a target from a total return perspective. So to think both about the income that is thrown off and also um, the, the capital um, gains that they can receive over time from their investments. And what we like people to do is as they, as they work with and, and people can work independently online or they can work with our advisors um, and sort of think through their particular financial goals together, what we like them to do is think quite hard, first of all, about you know, what is the income, the expected income you're looking to achieve, and then what is the pot from which you'd like to try to achieve it? And is that pot something which you are only ever prepared to take income from? Is it possible to use part of the capital over time? Is there a specific percentage return, percentage yield? you know, that um, you're looking to. And you can then tailor very specifically your cash flows to line up with your particular goals. And we think that that is a much, um, much more efficient and effective way of targeting income specific to your needs rather than buying something which says income on the label, but then, as we saw in the Woodford case, was doing something rather different, or as we've seen in other cases, can um, you know by, by necessity become really quite skewed towards specific industries when we don't think that there's a need for that to be the case. Okay, um, the next question I'm going to finish on because I think it really it's, it's a really good one to stop the dilemma facing investors looking to construct a, a balanced portfolio at the moment. Um, and it's how can investors create a balanced portfolio between equity and fixed income, given interest rates are near zero or negative, and the impending corporate debt default crisis? So, shall I just quickly answer that? And then, Charlotte, you you do the grand finale. But basically, um, I think that we've got a um, I don't know where the impending corporate default crisis bit comes from. But there are clearly areas of high yield concern around where companies have borrowed at high rates and are unable to pay that money back and i would uh, specifically point to the u.s shale sector in that respect where there is definitely a little stress um but junk bonds or bonds with relatively high yields have actually done quite well uh in this crisis and of course government bonds have done contrary to what i thought to be quite honest uh well because uh, governments are effectively, you know, forcing their or not forcing, but encouraging their central banks to provide a put and buying everything up. Um, how long that put will go on for is another matter. Because you can't have the government buying the bonds of underperforming companies forever. Otherwise, you you have no destruction in the economy. You you have a whole load of zombie uh, companies persisting forever. Um, so, Jim, what about the point that, um, that bonds, we, we were always taught to include bonds in a diversified portfolio as, uh, you know, um, risk-free return, but actually at the moment they're offering return-free risk, aren't they? So what, how, does a, how does an investor yeah, overcome that dilemma at the moment? 
Well, you, you don't buy them then. I mean, I, I, <laughs> thought, I, mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, that you, you may be taught one thing, but we all have to relearn stuff as we go. I was taught how to use a dial-up, you know, a dial telephone and when I was young. <laughs> they don't exist anymore. Um, so <laughs> I think we just have to relearn. And the fact of the matter is that anyone who buys a negative interest rate uh, bond, in my opinion, is a fool. You know, I think that's just a pass the parcel uh, thing. There are, however, some returns to be had from high quality uh, corporate bonds. I mean, some of the bank bonds look quite interesting. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's, it's probably harder to find good quality bonds that, that give you a reasonable yield than it is to find good quality stocks uh, that give you a reasonable yield. So uh, my own view is stick, generally speaking, at the current environment to equities, particularly those. And Charlotte was talking about um, dividend yielding equities. I think you need to have a ratio that's pretty close of two times earnings. Uh, in other words, the, the, the earnings have to cover the dividend by two times. Don't invest in a company which can't really afford to pay its dividend because almost certainly it will cut its dividend. Um, and uh, so and just invest in, in good quality companies. And again, I get back and this I'll hand over to Charlotte uh, to the fact that if you don't feel that you've got the time, the inclination or the background to invest in uh, individual companies yourself, except at the extremes, and that is in the insurance side of your portfolio and in the, and by insurance, I mean insuring, insuring against risk, and at the other end in the metathematic stuff, then just give your money to professionals to manage. Well, you know, it, it's, um, it is a great way to finish um, because obviously what we do is run diversified portfolios and balanced portfolios are, are our sort of risk level four. And it, it is something which does take a certain amount of experience to be able to do well, particularly it's difficult at this, part of, uh, at this stage of the cycle, as the questioner is pointing out. Um, it is really interesting that last year, and it turns out that Jim was among them, which I didn't know, um, there were a lot of people who were very skeptical about government bonds offering any value. And actually, we had kept quite a high exposure to fixed income via government bonds because about what we were able to achieve with um, lower credit um, investments at that stage. Um, but we wanted to keep uh, a certain amount of duration and interest rate exposure in the portfolios. And that actually worked, obviously, now in hindsight, we know extremely well. More recently, we've reduced our position in government bonds um, along the lines of what, of what Jim was talking about. Um, you know, we've really got to the stage where definitely wouldn't be buying bonds where there are negative interest rates. But we do think there are some areas in the credit curve that offer better value than they did before. And so we will continue um, in the sort of middle risk segments to mix fixed income with equities. Um, and, and it is exactly why I started NetWealth, in fact, because I didn't want to run my own money and I did want a team of people who I felt were professional and super able um, to be helping do that for me. And I couldn't be happier. I, I have my own money um, for that that central bit of the sandwich that Jim was talking about, 
at NetWealth. And it is a very nice feeling to have a group of professional people thinking through exactly these types of issues on my behalf and on behalf of all our clients. Okay, thank you. That's the end of the webinar. Um, I just want to apologise for the, the technical difficulties that we had earlier on, and um, I'm sure that'll be sorted for the next webinar. Um, a big thank you to both of our panellists, particularly to Charlotte and to NetWealth for their support. Um, also, a big thank you to all of you for participating. Um, and just a quick reminder that the survey will be popping up shortly, so thanks in advance for those of you that take the time to complete that. Look after yourselves and happy investing.